This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to The Hand Cell, where interesting people tell us about books that they think we should read. I'm Jen Northington. I'm coming to you from Book Riot. And today's guest is Julian Uggen, uh, author of the recently published No Country for Eight Spot Butterflies. Welcome, Julian. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being on. Yeah, we're so excited to talk to you. You are a very interesting person. (laughs) The definition of an interesting person. So if you would, would you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about who you are as a reader as well as an author? Uh, Okay, sure. Um, So, you know, as a reader, I just, I live for sentences, you know? Mm. Sometimes like I remember entire books because of a single sentence that was just, I don't know, left me breathless and changed, you know? Mm. And then um, sometimes I love a a really good story, you know? And I can kind of forgive, you know, the writing, even when it's, I don't know, there's no restraint or whatever, but the story's (laughs) so good, I'm in. You know, it's just sometimes, you know, it just sort of depends. And I'm totally open to different genres. Although like lately I've been reading a ton of nonfiction, Mm. which is in part because I'm writing uh, my own sort of a nonfiction collection. Mm -hmm. Um, Having just written one and writing one more now, um, it's just, um, I don't know, it's important for me to, just sort of hear um, and listen to what sort of my colleagues are saying, especially those who are writing around the same topics, for example, the climate crisis. Yes. Um, yeah. So that that's really important to me. So I just finished like a, t- a ton of books on that topic. But yes, <laughs> today, though, I totally picked books that were not about uh, the climate crisis. Uh, Not directly, at least two of the three, because I've also, um, for me anyway, as a reader, sometimes fiction is just so necessary, too, because fiction does something, you know, um, it just does something really important that it just sort of worries the edges, you know, of your not only literary, but but your political and your moral imagination. Yeah. And I think that's super critical, especially now, because when we're facing such daunting challenges, like the climate crisis yes. it's so it's so necessary to realize that the world is can be bigger than what you are told to believe you know? mm, mm-hmm. yes and you are very you know situated in that work right so you are a climate activist you're a lawyer you're an indigenous person you're from guam like you're facing so many of these issues in your own life obviously and doing so mm. much work around that and so i completely i i love what you said about you know how we need to listen and hear i feel like that comes up in your book as well nice yeah yeah yeah. All right. Well, wonderful. That's a wonderful introduction. I feel like we have situated <laughs> ourselves here. Uh, before we get into your very first pick, we will do a quick sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, 
quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. All right. So you have picked, yes, some fiction, some nonfiction, mostly fiction for us to talk about today. I'm super excited about your picks. Actually, this doesn't always happen when you do an interview, but you have picked at least two of the three are ones that I'm very familiar with. So I can't wait to hear you talk about them. It's always so lovely to hear what somebody else loves about a book that you love, right? Because it sometimes you see something new or sometimes you just get to be like, yes, that's my feeling exactly. So totally. Yeah. So let's start with uh, your first pick, which is Sharks in the Time of Saviors by Kawhi Strong Washburn. Sure. So I'll just let you know now, you know, it, it, it was it was a task for sure to, <laughs> to pick three and only three books because yeah. I probably have read like just in the last like uh, six months, like 30 that I love deeply. Um, but oh. I really wanted to pick three books that I read during at the height of the pandemic. Mm. That's the, sort of how I went with my choice, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because I had been dealing with so much. I mean, the pandemic really obviously um, brought home sort of like all sort of manner of devastation, mm-hmm. uh, not only here in Guam, but across the country and indeed across the world. Um, and, and I really, really needed books, um, arguably more than I ever have. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so this first book, um, Sharks in the Time of Saviors, I just was not ready. <laughs> I really wasn't prepared for how good it would be. And I mean that both at the sentence level, mm. um, I think the writing was so, um, so 
electrifying. Mm. Um, and I and I also felt like um, as a writer, I think Kavai's strong washboard is just quite gifted um, because he can slide into like, I mean, really, really charged um, sentences, like whole passages, whole pages, where it, it's almost like, you know, you feel your heart beating quicker. I mean, that's mm. what good writing does. Mm. You know? it's, it's, it's bodily. You feel it. It, at a cellular level because you you react so so um strongly to it um and then and and then and then it glides you know into like it into like a really soft landing with um almost an an exceeding amount of tenderness mm. and i just thought this writer is gifted um and so i i can't say enough good things about it so the story is essentially um a story about a working class um, Hawaiian Filipino family in the island in the Hawaiian Islands who um, are faced with the sort of like a, a lot of sort of huge change mm -hmm. when they came when they basically were on a vacation of like and this is something that like local worker working families barely ever get to do but they took a vacation on a boat and then one of their their youngest son Nainoa who's I guess you could say right the protagonist the, mm. the seven-year-old boy he um falls overboard and instead of being mauled by the sharks he's saved by them um, and, and the writing, of course, around the scene is just gorgeous, but um, the, the sharks save him. And then that sort of starts, it catapults you into the story about a family that's sort of wrestling with all of those questions, you know, mm. and they're all questions related to magic in one way or another, you know, mm -hmm. and how, how the family is processing that. I mean, I don't know how, what you thought, but I mean, basically, it to me, it, it's a commentary on on lots of things. Uh, yes. For, for, so right, it's a, on the one hand, it's almost like um, like a commentary against the, the sort of like the singular savior savior mm -hmm. narrative, right? Because mm -hmm. that this power. So oh, I forgot to say, after um, he was saved by the sharks, Nainoa develops these sort of special gifts, and they're the gifts of healing. Um, mm -hmm. He would eventually go on to become a e uh, study, I think, at Stanford and then become an EMT in Portland. But his family drifts apart. They all all, all the siblings do um, because they're all struggling. Um, it, I think there's a sentence in there from the sister's character uh, where she talks about being like a sister, but strictly in the form of a shadow. Mm -hmm. She is like just nothing but her Nainoa sister, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and the brother Dean, who's a great basketball player, and then he eventually goes to college in Spokane. They never name it, but it feels like it, they they're talking about Gonzaga University. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, which is known for basketball. It's hilarious. But also I think he he he's it's the same. They're trapped in the sense that they're both so great, the brother and the sister. They're great and they have gifts of their own. Yeah. But they're so hampered by sort of and locked in this sort of like endless sort of battle, which is a battle of self mm -hmm. and a battle of relations, you know, with mm. not only with their brother Nainoa, but with their parents who feel at times like they don't have enough love to give an equal measure and mm. pass it around, you know? So mm -hmm. they concentrate all their love on their son. And it's such a brilliant story. I mean, and, and clearly, um, I think I should just say this. I think like Marlon James, I yeah. think in his blurb, there was like a, a sentence. He said, um, love is in a ride or die with grief. And I was like, there, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Because that's how the book felt to me. What did you think? I, I thought. Yeah. That. Well, I mean, I agree with you. That book is doing the most all the time forever, right? Like mm. there's so much mm -hmm. going on. And also thank you for that corrected pronunciation of the author's name. I'm going to remember that, Kavai. No. 
Uh, and yeah, no, I, I was, as you were so struck by the family relationships, you know, cause I am actually a middle child myself and I oh, have wow. a lot of sympathy for complicated sibling stories <laughs> and <laughs> the way that each character in that book gets a voice and mm. the way we see what this, you know, as you said, the search for the single savior does to a family, to a person, because, you know, it's not all. It's not a bed of roses for Nainoa either, right? This is a oh, no. really intensely damaging thing that happens to all of them, even as it has sort of beautiful moments as well. So, yeah, I think like everything you said <laughs> is, is spot on. And yes, the oh, sentence nice, nice. level, the sentence level is just stunning, stunning. Right. I, and, and, it's, and, and it's also God, if I can keep going, I, I'm yeah. like such a okay. girl right now. <laughs> but basically, Jen, that scene, even when like the mom and they're, they're, they're trying to reconcile or come to and there, yeah. there's a depiction of the frogs outside that yes. are making noise, the cokey frogs. Ooh, and I got chills. When I got to eat <laughs> me too, I, I literally started sobbing when I got to that very short sentence the cokey frogs go. Mm. I was like, oh my God, because he had <laughs> set it up so well that like, I, it's just a charge through my body and it's electrifying. I don't even know how to, uh, how to better describe yeah. that, but that was the scene. That was a perfect setup where it, it's like you are so vested, you know, mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in this family and you are rooting for them because, because they're going through a lot of shit, yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 Amazing. Uh, so I I don't know if you, you have a lot of jobs already, but have you considered book reviewing? Because I think you'd be good at it. Oh, God, no, I never have. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to. I, this is one of the first times I've ever actually been asked about my opinions about other books. So oh, it's cool. well, you have great opinions. Uh, OK, OK. Nice. Let's, I feel like we could spend like 45 minutes okay. talking about sharks. We'll, but move let's, on. we'll move on to the next one, which also is a book that is near and dear to my heart. I'm going to tell you that this book that you picked is the reason I have four roses planted in my garden. So, wow. True story. All right. So tell the people what your next pick is. Okay, my next pick is How to Write an Autobiographical Novel by Alexander Chi, which is in and of itself hilarious because it's obviously not a how-to book. Right. I mean, you know, not at all. It's just um, a deep reflection of sort of the writing life, you know? Mm. Like, it, 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 it is so well done. I was like, I had not, I came to the party late. You know, the mm. party, you know, of celebrating Alexander Chi and his genius. Like, I just didn't know enough about Alexander, Alexander Chi before. I mean, I'd heard about his really famous books. Um, it is Edinburgh and also Queen of the Night. But yes, this um, this book um, is a gem. I don't I mm -hmm. don't um, it's it, I, I can hardly articulate like why it matters so much to me i mean as a queer indigenous like person from guam like this is like a book that like within the first i think two chapters or I i'm already aware as a mm. reader that she actually spent a portion of his childhood in the islands uh, in the island of guam um, mm. on, on my island mm. and the surrounding island of chu in the federated sites of micronesia these are places where famous writers like him like, <laughs> these are not places that are spoken about in the canon of this is right. not in literature i mean and so like these are places that i know deeply and dearly and love you know i mean mm -hmm. guam you know i came of age here 
Mm-hmm. And so like to share that with the author, like, like, and to be so surprised by it was, was a nice thing. But, but in terms of the writing itself and the pieces, it's just a loose collection of, I think I watched an interview of him after I read it because I was so obsessed with how mm-hmm. good it was. And he, I, I found out that he had about 70 essays or so to choose from. So, so, so the curation of that, like how we curated that, him and his editors, it was, is it, a fascinating story. I may never know, but the mm. truth is, it's, it's the arrangement. It is like, wow, he mm-hmm. arranged that. I mean, it, it makes music. Um, and I mean, it has the classic coming of age stuff, like mm-hmm. him being an exchange student in Mexico, uh, passing for Mexican. He's also talks. It's a meditation on being like a mixed race. Mm-hmm. Um, he's Korean American himself and gay. And, and other things and he but it's it's a whole life gem it's like you as yes. you know right you you read it and loved it it's like him in the 80s late 80s early 90s at the height of the AIDS epidemic in San mm-hmm. Francisco and like being on the receiving end of police batons like so you have like all of this sort of like sweaty laborious sort of like lived <laughs> experience you yes. know distilled right and then you yeah. have all it and then you have him working for Oh my God, the Buckleys, which is yes. so interesting. <laughs> and as a cater waiter, and also just being a writer who's teaching in the like the day after like Trump is elected, mm-hmm. and like I mean, and there, and there's like many moments, and so you see what's happening. It's like it's this really, it's it's a meditation on like the life of a writer and one's relationship to writing. Mm-hmm. And I and I really appreciate Alexander Chi and his understand. Like I think he thinks that. I mean, because there's this classic debate, right? Can you teach a writer uh, good writing? Can you right. can you make writers, right? Are mm-hmm. they born or are they made, etc.? But he thinks, you know, that they that you can teach it, and the re- but but if you listen really like carefully, attentively to what he's really saying, like I think part of his message is that the 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 real writer, the true writer, is the one that lasts, the one that has enough stamina, mm. the one that can bear it. It's like an emotional cavernousness, <laughs> you know, like like open heartedness and an ability to bear a sort of an inordinate amount of sort of pain and suffering. I know that sounds awful, but it's true. But I think he's talking about bearing. The, the writer has to bear a writer's life, and that. It feels so observant, but it feels so true after you read these essays. And while you're reading them, you have this sort of same bodily experience where you're, it's like, I feel like when I was reading it, I wasn't just like reading a book from another. It was like given to me as a gift, but it was like an invitation, like a Mm -hmm. door swung open, you know, and he was like inviting me as a writer as well to walk through it and to really examine the hallways and to pick up the items, you know, like these are like sort of like, right? Like they're the the content of his interior life, Mm -hmm. which he clearly has such an extraordinarily alive interior life mm. and he, I don't know I I love him I don't even know him um, <laughs> but I feel I feel love for him I mean um it's it's on a deeper than average level you know yeah. sort of how much respect I have for him as a writer and as a human isn't it amazing when those books come into your life? Like when you, just out of nowhere, somebody hands you something or you pick it up by accident and it just speaks to you on that level. Yes. I, I mean, I don't know how often it happens for you. I mean, for me, it doesn't always happen, you know? No, so, no. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. So when those are does, special books. Um, yeah. Yes. It's so special. And I think, I think it's because he, he's so, um, 
I, I don't know. And again, it's funny, right? Because I, I don't know him myself, but <laughs> I just feel like um, he has um, an unusually capacious ability to pay attention, mm. to be curious about life and what mm. we're doing here, you know? And, and then his remarkable ability to write in such a way that it's so distilled. Mm. I mean, so many passages. Oh, did you think so, Jen? I thought so many passages were so distilled, you could call them poetry because they were just like a dropping. They had a sitting down sense. Mm. You know? Yeah. It's hard to explain. Yeah. No, I know what you mean, though. He is a very... I like the idea of the distillation, right, of experience that he then manages yeah. to put on the page so simply and beautifully, that, mm-hmm. which is, right, what poetry does oftentimes. Uh, it's so interesting. This is, so I'm going to ask you sort of an unfair yeah. question because, sure. <laughs> because I'm putting you on the spot. But so I said, you know, that he, this collection, I, I think when people come to this collection, you know, very much so they find their piece like there's the piece that stands out to them maybe one or two pieces that's that really stick in their brain because they're the ones that like call to something you know in you that you're like oh there it is it's expressed on the page like it's right there um and for me one of those essays was the rose garden essay which I forget that oh and that's why you planted the roses and that's why I planted the roses well I just I don't know I have always loved the idea of having roses but you know apartment life right like I and I I was very under the impression that you had to like know things like you had to be good at whatever for for roses to be a thing that you could do so I was pretty convinced I would never have any roses of my own and then I read that book and actually speaking of the pandemic you know there's this idea of pandemic purchases right my first pandemic purchase was a dwarf rose bush that sits in a pot so you don't have to have a yard and I was like I can like I can I can have beauty I can I can nurture something I can curate a plant experience for myself like I can do I can give that to myself and that was huge for me and then the other one and who knows if I'll ever actually do this is he talks about being on on the pilgrimage in Spain and that is something that when I first learned about that pilgrimage in college actually I was like oh one day I'm going to do it and I had kind of forgotten about it and you know reading that essay where he's actually on part of it brought me back to that college self right where I could be like oh right remember when I first learned about that and felt that call and like I had forgotten mm. and now it's like awake again and you know maybe so oh, that's so, awesome. no, so I get you that. know I totally get that. yeah so it sounds like <laughs> the writing essays in particular obviously you're a writer right like and you're you're also working on memoir and those kinds of things so do you yeah. feel like those were your essays well, or yeah yeah I mean so, like on one level it's it's tempting to say for sure like on becoming an American writer you mm-hmm. know like it's like they're really clear explicitly writer things, writerly sort of reflective pieces, but but the roses piece is incredible. And actually the, re- the reason why I've been sort of thinking so much about roses lately actually mm. is because another writer, Rebecca Solnit has just come out with a book recently called Orwell's Roses. I saw I, that. It's, I, I just started it. Granted, if I had finished it, I would that would probably be on the list too because I've heard her do an interview about why she wrote it and oh. this insistence on beauty. It's like an insistence on beauty to insist on beauty. Mm. It's like to insist on life, no matter the hour, even at the hour of death. I mean, Oof. it is, it is so um, 
it feels vital. I mean, in the same way. So yes, so the Roses essay, sorry, I'm going on a tangent. Okay. I'm reading a lot lately. You're fine. <laughs> yeah, so the Querent also was beautiful. Like his meditation mm. on being like a tarot card reader. Like there's so many things, you know, that, that stuck with me. So, and so, like, so that was also this like, this um, constant sort of ceaseless questing spirit, you know, mm. like he is on the journey. Like, mm. I mean, he's on the journey and, and he's filled with questions and the reader gets the benefit of sort of like looking at it, even from something as simple as sort of like, or not simple as reading tarot cards, right? Yes. It's, it's, it, it feels like this meditation on, um, on, I don't know, um, uh, interrogating, interrogation. I, I don't know how, how to say this, but yeah, it just feels like he is searching and searching and, and, and it's so, um, it's so riveting because you're part of this experience and he's given it to you and assembled in such a way where you realize that it's less about the answer. You know, it's about mm -hmm. answering a question than it is about enlarging the question. It is mm. like very, very arresting to me. Like yeah. I mean, his, his project, whatever it is, like and I, <laughs> I may disagree with how I've characterized his work, but I really deeply love it. That's wonderful. Oh, I feel like we could, we're going to like we could spend a lot of time talking about books, you and I. All right. I so, know, I <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to move us along a little bit here. Let's take another sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. At she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up 
The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so before we go on to your third pick, let's talk about your book. So No Country for Eight Spot Butterflies. The subtitle of this is a lyric essay, which I I love, but also I feel like, well, it's many essays, right? And poems. There's a lot going on. So a lyric essay almost feels like a very simplified version of what this book is. Well, in part, it was it's simplified version because it's almost impossible to articulate what the book is, which is hilarious. You know, it's a collection, though. It's a collection of writing, writing that I have penned over the course of my life at different sort of particularly memorable moments, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. some of them are adapted from old journal entries that I wrote, for example, after working for Mother Teresa in Mm -hmm. India when I was a teenager, Um, just very young scraps of journals that I then sort of looked at for the first time. Um, And and some of them were essays, uh, for example, op-eds that that I wrote um, when my island of Guam was being threatened with um, uh, ballistic, a ballistic missile attack mm-hmm. from uh, yeah from North Korea and then so like all of this, those these are existential moments that are like clearly you know you, where you're asked to do the impossible and mm-hmm. that is to steal yourself for the possibility of oblivion there's no yeah. way to do that you know and so a writer is like faced with these in these moments you know where you do ask some of the questions that she was asking his book what is the point of writing why do mm. we why are we called to do this what are we doing here and you know Mm -hmm. and it became clear to me that my book is a book about bearing witness Mm. you know whether or not like in my daily life I you know um, go about my work as a human rights lawyer I am largely in in service of opposing this sort of large-scale militarization of Guam by Mm -hmm. uh, by the United States Um, Guam remains a colony under American rule Mm -hmm. Um, and we we have an independence movement here. We have we have been fighting um, sort of these just gargantuan forces, you know. And now, yeah. the, in addition to climate change, this like it's Guam is on its way to becoming one of the most militarized places on the planet. And so mm. I have to write about that and, and work on that in mm-hmm. the day, but at night I have other questions, you know. And mm-hmm. I and I realize I had to write because I couldn't breathe. I needed to collect the the pieces that I've written about what it sort of feels like to be on the ground here in this community, but also like other pieces, larger, broader pieces about what it feels like as an indigenous person in this country to being to bear witness to all that has befallen us, you know, and to to really crystallize what matters to us, mm-hmm. and, you know, and that's what I'm trying to put forward in No Country. This just uh, it's a reflection you know, on um, what matters most, you know, to indigenous yeah. peoples, which is the earth and each other. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was very powerful. I did. It was it helped that it was very short. I'm not going to lie. My attention span these days is is, <laughs> is sometimes stymied, but I, I loved it. It was it's a beautiful book, by the way. It's stunning. I love the cover design. Uh, oh, thank and, you so much. Yeah, I... just like very satisfying to hold in your hands. It has a nice it has a nice that, that makes me feel really good. And also, <laughs> I'll just say the last thing is 
to me, the re- I mean, it's like a for- full circle moment for me. I don't know like how to describe it, but my favorite living writers are Dottie Roy and she yes. wrote the introduction to the book, which well, is, is mind blowing. I was going to I was going to say, like, I was half expecting you to come into this interview with an Arundhati Roy pick because, you know, clearly her work is very important to you. And she yeah, she wrote the introduction to your book. Like I I was I was all I was like, I wonder if, if that will happen. Oh, yeah, no, that's that's a good that's uh, that would have been logical. Yeah, because her books clearly are among the, my favorite ever written. But yeah, I was super focused on the, uh, for this interview on just really identifying those books that really helped me in a time that I desperately needed. Yes. Help. yes. And those are during the pandemic. And so yes. that's why, for example, the books that I mentioned. Yeah. Well, I just one more question before we move on to your last pick. Do you? Sure. So you said, you know, the the Mother Teresa section, for example, is based on journal entries that you wrote. So have you been writing your whole life and then you know it sort of became part of your uh outlet as you say you know to to consider these questions or was it something that developed later for you oh that's a great question and actually um weirdly complicated one because I don't actually think I was I I mean I've been writing forever right yes but I don't think I didn't think of myself as a writer very consciously Mm. until recently like I I was, you know, just writing to process sort of where and, and but in the book, you could say it was in some ways primarily written to process my own grief mm-hmm. about what, what, what's what been happening here. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I think I've been a writer forever, although I didn't claim the, that identity very explicitly. Sure. Well, I think it takes a lot of people. I mean, there's there's like a lot of imposter syndrome and there's a lot of barriers to feeling like you're sure, sure. a writer, right? Capital W sure. writer. So, yeah. Well, OK, so let's let's talk about your last pick, which is the one that's unfamiliar to me. So I'm looking forward to hearing about it from you. Oh, sure. Um, Yeah, this is the, a different kind of book. I mean, it's very short. It's like a it's a manifesto, really. And also program a program of action. It's called The Red Deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is put out by the Red Nation, um, which is like a an amazing national group um, that's really a collective of indigenous um, people across uh, the country that mm-hmm. were really galvanized in the wake of the um, the Dakota Access Pipeline mm-hmm. and the Standing Rock movement. I mean, those like all of those players, you know, it's like a wide cast of characters, and these are just brave, fierce indigenous land protectors and water defenders. And they got together, they formed an organization, they put out this incredibly beautiful book called The Red Deal. I mean, it's just short, it it punches well above its weight, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's so clear eyed. It's Mm. such a clear eyed sort of um, diagnosis of how we got here, why we're in the mess that we're in, why the planet and its sort of natural life systems have been brought to its knees, to their knees. And that is because of sort of predatory global capitalism. Mm. I mean, this is the most overtly, obviously political of the three books, (laughs) Um, but I just think it was super important because we can't always be hedging our bets. Uh, We Mm. cannot sit here and go, oh, on the one hand, A, and on the other hand, B. And oh, this is so complicated. Sometimes it's not complicated. Mm. Sometimes it's clear. Sometimes we know very well who the perpetrator is, Mm. you know, and we have to point at him. Mm-hmm. And we have to know that and we have to claim that. And the Red Nation has done exactly that. And they have put forward a beautiful book that uh, that both diagnoses sort of the sort of 
the reasons, the sort of, they've explained very clearly how um, this prevailing economic model has brought, it. well, is at war fundamentally yeah. with, with the life support systems of this planet that we inhabit and we share together. Mm. And, on the, uh, and then the, it also goes further and maps out a plan of action, like one where it has several different features. For example, land back. It's mm-hmm. not a metaphor. You know, this idea that actually we mean what we say when mm-hmm. we say land back. And we mean it because indigenous peoples, I mean, there's a, there's an, a ton of evidence to this to this end, you know, that indigenous peoples, when they when we are in control of our traditional lands, territories and resources, we are most equipped to actually steward them in a responsible, sustainable way mm-hmm. that has the most chance of delivering sort of like a future inhabitable world to future generations, to our mm-hmm. children and grandchildren. And so it's just very clear about that. I mean, it talks about the Green Deal as well, the Green New Deal, which is like an effort to, you know, I, I won't go into too much detail because I think we're over time already, but <laughs> it actually talks about the importance of the Red New Deal. That, yeah. And this, this concept is this, I mean, I'll, I'm being a little simplistic, I'm, I'm painting with a very broad brush, but basically the idea is there is no solution to cl- the climate crisis. Right. You know, there is no answer to the sort of the environmental devastation without indigenous liberation. Mm. So it foregrounds indigenous liberation in a way that's very, very compelling and absolutely persuasive. Mm. Um, and I am, mean, I adhere to those same sort of core um, principles. I would call them intellectual and political commitments. And I adhere to them. Um, yeah. And so I love the book. Um, and of course, I would love everyone to read it and to support the to, to support Red Media. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I am. I will be buying it based on that <laughs> recommendation. You definitely sold it. And it sounds like something we all need to be reading. Absolutely. Oh, I thank do. You so much, I do Jen. wish we could just keep talking about books indefinitely. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Um, will you tell the people where they can find you on the internet? Should they be interested in following more of your work? Sure. I mean, I'm on Twitter, um, um, Julian Uggen. Um, also, they, if if anyone's interested in pre-ordering the book, the book of um, or ordering the book, they can go to Astor House the website or they can actually buy books wherever books are sold i mean it's every it'll be everywhere so but please you know check it out i mean i would appreciate it yes absolutely it is really beautiful you you're gonna want to see it it's a it's a lovely book everyone so yeah well again thank you so much this has just been an absolute pleasure Thank you, Jen. And thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, we would love to hear your feedback at getbookedbookriot.com. And if you would like more recommendations, you can always get those at bookriot.com. You can find our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. And as per usual, if you leave us a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, wherever, uh, it does help other folks to find the show. And you can find me, well, I'm on my social media break right now, but I might be back (laughs) eventually on Twitter and Tumblr as Jen IRL and on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And we will talk to you next time.